Thank you, Sue. That was a wonderful time of worship. I really enjoyed that. Just focusing on God's goodness and being thankful. Well, this morning, I want to share with you a part of our vision for Grace Christian Fellowship. And that is that we would become a church of pastors. You know, when Garrett was sharing at the start how we really begin here at 9.30 and we have a time of prayer at 9.30 and that goes till about 10. And then from 10 until 10.30, we have a time where we can connect with one another. And what I would like to present to you is that that time is really a time where we can pastor one another. It's not the only time we can pastor, but it's one of the times that we can pastor one another. Now, I'm going to tell you what the scriptures mean when it talks of being a pastor. But before I get to that, I want to talk about our Bible in English, okay? Because there is a connection. Don't worry, I'm not going off topic. See, I'm still looking at my notes. That's what, if I start talking and I'm over here and I'm not looking at any notes, you have no idea how long I'm going to go or what I might be saying, but I'm, I still have notes. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's not news to any of us. This means that God is the one who started off the process that brings us his word in concretion. Now, how did he do that? He inspired, for the New Testament, he inspired various disciples to write down his word, and he did that in the Greek language. That's great for people in the first century who spoke Greek. I would estimate that fewer than one in 10,000 Christians today could actually read the New Testament in Greek. So what about us? Are we out of luck? No, not at all. This is where we enter the world of Bible translation. And we have many, many excellent translations of the scriptures into English. My personal favorites are the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, and the New International Version. You may have other personal favorites. That's great. We have lots of good ones to, to uh, consider. But when you think about translation, you might not think about this very much, but when you're translating from one language to another, the goal is not simply to take words of one language and put them into words in another language. That's the easy part, okay? What, you, what the more difficult part is to make sure that you are conveying the meaning of the words as they were originally inspired by God. And again, our English Bibles do, for the most part, an excellent job at conveying not only the words in translation, but also getting us the meaning. But other times, we need a bit more of an explanation. And pastor is one of those times. But I want to give you the example that Garrett used last week. What does it mean when we say that Jesus is our Lord. Now, we all know that Jesus is our Lord. What do you think of when you say Jesus is your Lord? Now, in the first century, when this was inspired, they would have a very concrete understanding of what it meant to be a Lord. But we don't live in ancient Roman culture. So what do we think of? We could be a little fuzzy with that. So what Garrett did was he not only just translated the word. I mean, Lord is the proper translation for the Greek word koreos. There's nothing, no problem with the translation. The problem is making sure we get the meaning. And so what Garrett did was he said, let's look at Jesus as our leader. 
He is the one who leads us. Oh, good. Yeah, I know what leaders are. That's easier for me to get my arms around than Lord. And I would like to add a little more than that. Not only is Jesus our leader, but he's a leader that you love to be around and that you serve willingly. That's all tied up in what the first Christians would think about when they thought of Jesus as their Lord. So what does this have to do with being a church of pastors, you're beginning to ask yourself? Well, we need a biblical understanding of what does the Bible mean when it talks about people being pastors, and how does that apply to me in my life today? So when I say we, we can become a church of pastors, that's our vision that we would each of us become a church of pastors. Some people hear that and they go, oh, no, wait a second. Pastors are men and women who are ordained of God to a particular ministry. I'm not one of them. I'm just a regular believer. Well, being ordained as a pastor is one of the ways that the word pastor is used. It is not, however, the most frequent way that it's used in the New Testament. So we need to expand our understanding a little bit. And the word pastor, as it's used in the New Testament, has both a literal meaning and a figurative meaning. And you won't understand the figurative meaning if you don't know what the literal meaning is. So let's first start there. When it comes to your English translations in the Bible, the word shepherd and the word pastor are the exact same Greek word. The exact same Greek word. When the translators came to a verse, if the people were described as caring for animals, they used the word shepherd. If they came to another verse where the people are described as caring for other people, they chose the word pastor. And I'm fine with that distinction because even in our culture today, we understand in general English usage to pastor someone means to care for them. But what I would like to do is to show you what a shepherd really was, because the figurative usage will not mean much to you if you don't know the literal usage that God was using as a launching pad for this message. So a shepherd is someone who cares for the flock, and he cares for the flock directly. And in the ancient world, flocks were small. You might be thinking of ranchers. Ranchers can have thousands of heads of cattle that they throw out on the pasture to eat all summer long and then bring them back in the fall to get slaughtered. God does not say, the Lord is my rancher. Okay? The Lord is my shepherd. And a shepherd lives with the sheep. I'm sure you've all heard the story around the birth of Jesus Christ. There were shepherds at night in their fields abiding with the sheep. That's what a shepherd does. He lives with the sheep. He cares for them as though they were his own children. And one of the great descriptions of a biblical shepherd is given in Psalm 23. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, is probably the most well-known Old Testament passage. Probably the most well-known New Testament passage is John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But you don't have to be Christian or Jewish to have heard the Lord is my shepherd, to have heard that psalm. And David, the writer of that psalm, the one that God worked within at that time, was a shepherd. That's what he did as he was growing up. And shepherds were common in the ancient world, and everybody would know 
We don't have, there's no shepherds in Naperville. We don't have any example of this. Now, if it said the Lord is my plumber, okay, I know what plumbers do. Or, you know, the Lord is my handyman. Okay, well, think of John Drake. I know what they do. I know what he does. The Lord is my shepherd. You probably don't know how, you know, if you know how people care for sheep, now you might think the Lord is my shepherd. Was he an Australian sheepdog? That's how people take care of sheep today, but that's not what it was like in the ancient world. So I want to get us back to what God is really talking about. So let's just read together the first few verses of Psalm 23. Again, the original hearers would have a picture in their mind of what this was talking about. So I need to help paint that picture for you. The Lord is my shepherd. What a wonderful relationship that would give to people in that time because they knew that shepherds cared for their sheep. I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. They knew that a shepherd takes care of their sheep. The sheep didn't have to worry about where they were going to get their food. The shepherd brought them to the food, brought them to the water. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. No stubble, no, no burned out stubble, green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Sheep drink from still waters. They don't drink from running water, from rivers. They prefer to drink from lakes and ponds, which is easier for them. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Evil is around, but I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Why would they comfort him? Why would they comfort the sheep? Because they know they're protected. They know they're protected. A shepherd, then, is someone who feeds, guards, and cares for his flock. And with a good shepherd, the sheep have no concerns. Jesus, by the way, is called and calls himself the good shepherd. In 1 Peter, he's called the chief shepherd. But we're going to read him say this himself in John chapter 10. And in verse 11, Jesus is talking here. These words are being read if you've got one of a red-letter Bible. I am the good shepherd. They already knew what shepherds were. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That would even be more than a regular shepherd would do. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. See how Jesus starts, I am the good shepherd. He describes it and he ends with, I am the good shepherd. He kind of bookmarks that for us. He cares for us. We are his own. He values us. We are important to him. We are not a job to Jesus Christ. So God is called a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus Christ is also called a shepherd. He is the good shepherd. Men and, there are men and women who are ordained of God as shepherds, as pastors within the church. Elders within the church are charged with pastoring or shepherding people, and we actually are charged with caring for one another. Look at what Jesus said to Peter 
This is just before he ascended into heaven. He's already been raised from the dead. It says in John 21, 16, Jesus said to Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Let me get a show of hands here. How many people love Jesus? Okay, we got lots of... Okay, so we would all answer this question, yes. And so did Peter. Then let's see what Jesus says to him. Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And that word tend there, depending on the translation you read, it's the Greek word shepherd. It's the Greek word pastor. That's what he said for Peter to do with Jesus' sheep, which is interesting because Jesus is the good shepherd, and a shepherd might have hired hands under him, right? Jesus did not want us to be hired hands under him. We're not hired hands. We are also shepherds with him. We are to shepherd his sheep. I think that's a, and again, start to get in your mind the care that a shepherd would have. Jesus' desire is that for those who love him, that we would care for one another. And Jesus set the example for us of what it meant to be a good pastor, a good shepherd. I like the distinction between shepherd and pastor. I understand it's the same Greek word, but I, I like a difference in emphasis when it's talking about animals and when it's talking about people. Now, part of our vision, as I said, is that we would become a church of pastors, a church where we care for one another and help each other to grow into our destiny. Because you have a destiny. You might have lived this life of yours for the last 20, 30, 40, 60 years, whatever, and you have your life has in your mind perhaps unfolded in a certain way. God has a destiny for you. And God's destiny for you might be quite different from the life you have experienced. But at any moment in time, you can begin to experience the destiny that God saw in your life before you were even born. Now, churches often call what I'm referring to as pastoring, they will call it discipling. And that's fine. That's taken from the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where Jesus said... Uh, to baptize, make disciples by first baptizing them and then teaching them to obey whatever I've taught you. That's what discipling is. Some churches also talk about mentoring instead of discipling because that's more of a modern word. Uh, but the mentoring relationship is not as close as a discipling relationship. Pastoring is a little different than discipling. You might think that the way I'm talking about it, that pastoring and discipling are the same thing. They are not. They have a lot of overlap, but they are two different words, and they emphasize two different things. When the Bible is talking about making disciples, it is talking about particular activities that you will do to help somebody grow into their, their new destiny. They will get them born again, and they will teach them God's Word. Those are the biblical steps to discipling, and they're wonderful. Jesus told us to do that. Jesus also said, shepherd my sheep. When you're pastoring somebody, the emphasis is not on activity. When you're pastoring someone, the emphasis is on relationship. And you might think that's a subtle shift 
but it's an important one to understand. Both discipling and pastoring are necessary to help people grow. And when you think about pastoring one another, how can we be a church of pastors? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll, you'll pastor my, my sheep. How do we do that? Well, the Bible gives us lots of instructions, and these instructions are placed within the context of many, many verses that talk about what we are to do with one another. If you want a nice, interesting study, look in the New Testament and look up all the places where one another is used of Christians with other Christians. And so I want to look at several of these one another's that are in the Bible. In the book of Romans, chapter 12, it says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. In Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. All these one another's are listing Parts of our relationship with each other where we pastor, where we care for each other, where we build each other up. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See the overlap between pastoring and discipling? Discipling certainly has a lot of teaching involved, but so does pastoring but it's in a more relational way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Hebrews 10, 24, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then 1 Peter 4, 10, As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another. All these one another's, these loving, serving, teaching, encouraging. That's what it means to pastor. And we can do that for one another. God's desire is that all of us would be able to pastor one another. You don't need to know much to be able to help someone else. Last week, Garrett briefly described something I'm going to look at a little more deeply today. And he described an encounter in John chapter 1 where two people pastored two other people. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John or take your phones or whatever else you'd like. Gospel of John chapter 1. Now, as you can tell, chapter 1 is pretty early in the Gospel, right? Jesus, at this point, hadn't taught anything to anybody yet. His public ministry had not yet started. So keep that in mind when you see how people are going to pastor one another. In John 1.35, it says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. That's John the Baptist. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Here's John the Baptist, where he was baptizing by the River Jordan. That guy there, he's the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. At this point, how much do they know about Jesus? Not a lot. They haven't even heard him speak yet. Look what's going to happen, though. So they followed Jesus. 
Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Now, isn't this interesting? The word rabbi, all Jews would understand what the word rabbi meant. But Gentiles reading this in the first century would not know what rabbi meant. So God embedded in this right there, which means teacher. You see, it wouldn't have been enough just to translate the word rabbi. So God actually implanted in this an explanation. Okay, he said to them, you know, where are you staying? Which is so interesting. You know, here's the Lamb of God. What are you looking for? Uh, uh, where are you staying? <laughs> they didn't know what to say. They didn't know anything. And he said, well, come and, see, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So what did, what did Andrew do? The first thing he did was he went and found his brother. He didn't know much to tell his brother Peter. He just said, well, you come over here. Let me take you to Jesus. All he knew was that John said, this guy is the Lamb of God. That's all he knew. Now, the next day, verse 43, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. You know what Philip said to him? He said to him the exact same thing that Jesus had said to Philip. Come and see. He didn't know much. It do, you don't have to know much to get started with helping people. Peter or Andrew and Philip did not know much, but they knew more than Peter and Nathaniel. Barely, but they knew a little bit more. What they knew was that John the Baptist had said Jesus was the Lamb of God. And because of that, they were able to help somebody else. And then they brought those people to Jesus where they could learn even more. And Notice who they went to. Andrew went to his brother. Philip went to a friend. Those people who are close to you are the first ones that we would reach out to pastor. We're also going to see now, if you'll turn to Matt, or Matt, not Matthew, John chapter 4, we'll see a stranger crossing Jesus' path and how that works out. This is the record. Many of you have heard this record of the woman at the well. It's a beautiful record of Jesus Christ ministering to somebody, to one person. You think, hey, he's the son of God. I should just be speaking to crowds. No, that's not how Jesus looked at it. We're going to read most of this record. In verse 3 it says, He, Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Let me explain this to you. Galilee is up north, Jerusalem is down south, and in between is the region of Samaria. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and on their part, the Samaritans returned the favor. 
Many Jews from Galilee wouldn't even walk through, through Samaria. They'd be up in Galilee, they'd cross the Jordan River, come south on that side, and then cross back over to get to Jerusalem. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. Let me ask you, do you think Jesus hated Samaritans? No, I don't think so. So he just walked right through Samaria. And he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. I read about uh, this field. I was reading Genesis this past week. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, here's another example of translation. This is a good translation. The words there in Greek say sixth hour. But what does that mean? It means lunchtime. Okay, some translations you might read might say noon. And what did they do there? They didn't translate the words, they translated the meaning. And that's really what you're after, is getting the meaning across. It was about the sixth hour, verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. In their culture, the women were the ones who went to draw the water at the well. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. You're a dog. Forget what I said. No, that's not what he said. He knew exactly who he was talking to. He says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir. Now, that's an important point there. The first time the woman responded to Jesus, it was rather abruptly. She didn't give him any respect. Well, why are you asking me a question? I'm a Samaritan woman. Now Jesus has said something to her, and she's intrigued. So now she says, "Uh, Sir. (laughs) She's showing a little more interest and respect. He says, now, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Is Jesus greater than Jacob? Yes, he is. This woman didn't know that at that point. So this is a rhetorical question. She's thinking, well, you're not greater than Jacob. She's about to find out perhaps he is. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, I'm sure just pointing at the well he's sitting on, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, again notice, sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Apparently, she didn't get what Jesus was talking about. Oh, this is great. I don't like coming out here at noon and getting water. Jesus, This is what's interesting. Now it gets interesting. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him. Again, she's not saying sir this time. Because in her mind, she's just been insulted. I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have, the guy you're living with now, is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
Okay, now he's really got her attention. The one, this is, and how would Jesus know this, okay? Good guess? No, God told him. God gave him revelation about this woman so that he could get her to God. When you're talking to people, whether they're other believers here or whether people that God brings across your path, expect God to work within you to reach that person. He might tell you something so that they recognize God is at work. He's not going to tell you something to snoop on people, okay? He's going to tell you something to help bring them closer to God. So now the woman said to him, Sir, oh, we're back to sir again. Okay, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. See, the Samaritans worshipped at a mountain in Samaria, and the Jews worshipped at the Mount Zion in Jerusalem. They both used the books of Moses as the basis of worshipping God. But they had differences, and for that, they didn't like each other at all. Sounds like Christian denominations today. Jesus, in verse 21, said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who he was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Apparently, everything Jesus said just went right over her head. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, there's an interesting statement. It is rare in the gospel record that Jesus explicitly claims that he is the Christ. This is one of those times. Is it to a fellow Jew? Is it to the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the high priests? No. It's to an outsider, a Samaritan woman. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman because that was not culturally acceptable, okay? But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They, they had figured, okay, yeah, why is he talking to a woman? But I'm not opening my mouth. You can ask him, Peter. So here's what happens next. The woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people. So she abandoned her mission, which was to get water. She left her water jar, went into the town and said, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, she didn't try to talk about all that Jesus had said about living water and worshiping by the Spirit. doesn't seem that that much connected to her. But she knew enough that this guy was different. This guy told me things about my life. Do you think this could be the Christ? Let's skip down to verse 39 and see the results of this woman caring about the people in her community. Now we're getting to the pastoring part. How much did this woman know? Not a lot. Jesus had told her some things, but that's not what she said back in town. Back in town, all she said was, he told me all about my life. Do you think this could be the Christ? She told what she actually knew. 
Verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, in Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. People will come to believe in Christ because of your testimony. Even if you only know the littlest bit. The woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. He didn't tell her all he ever did. He told her about she had five husbands. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Now, I, have to, I need to point something out here about that. Jesus stayed with Samaritans for two days. Absolutely forbidden in their culture. This would be as odd as two white men going to spend the weekend in a black family's home in the Jim Crow South. That would be what this is like. It's just unheard of. People don't do that. Jesus didn't give a hoot about cultural norms. He didn't care about what people thought was acceptable. He cared about what God thought was acceptable. And you know what? God thought Samaritans were acceptable. That's what God thought. So that's what Jesus, that's how Jesus lived. So he stayed with them for two days in Samaria, in their homes. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You see, this woman told them what she knew, which wasn't much. And then you know what she did? She brought them back to Jesus so that they could hear more. You could do that. You could do that with people. You could tell people what God has done for you. And then when they say, well, teach me more about this. Well, come on Sunday. Come over to our fellowship. Hear more. That's all that this woman did. This woman didn't really understand anything spiritual about Jesus, only that Jesus somehow knew about her life and that he claimed to be the Christ. You could be the woman at the well for your family, for your friends, for your community. That's pastoring. You may think that you know very little, but you know more than you imagine, and you know more than someone who knows nothing. You may not be an expert in the Scriptures, but you know where you are an expert? You are an expert in what God has done in your life. That's what you're an expert on. So talk about your expertise, how God has blessed you, what He's done for you, how He's amazed you. If you have been touched by God, Let other people know. You know, last week, Garrett shared something that just has stuck with me over and over again, and that was added value. Jesus Christ added value to people wherever he went. And now we can add value to others. And pastoring gives us the opportunity to add value into people's lives. It does not take much knowledge. You, each and every one of you have the skills you need to pastor someone. So I want to share with you a little bit about what pastoring looks like today. How you can leave here and pastor. No, you don't even have to leave here. I want, we can pastor one another when I sh- finally shut up, okay? We can start pastoring each other. And you know, when I look at this, what we do between 10 and 10.30, I look at that as a pastoring opportunity, an opportunity for me to receive pastoring, an opportunity for me to pastor others. 
And when I walk out the door, who knows who God will bring across my path? Jesus didn't start walking that day from Galilee with the idea of, you know, I think I'm going to witness to a woman in Samaria. No, he just happened to stop in Samaria and a woman came by. Happens to us as well. Reach out to those who God brings across your path. It could be friends, it could be relatives, co-workers, strangers. Many times we think that we have chance encounters with people. Don't look at them as chance encounters. Look at them as divine appointments that God is setting up for you. Then here's some of the steps of what it would look like to pastor somebody. And I have them in a very particular order. The first thing about pastoring is love people. Love people. Now, do you need to know a lot to love people? No, just love people. Then pray for them. This is what pastoring is, loving people, having a real concern where I value you because God values you. You have an intrinsic value because of God, not because of your experiences. You might look in the mirror and say, man, I'm beat up. That's not how God looks at you, though. So we love people. We pray for people. Then if you're going to pastor them, you include them in your life. You include them in your life. Share what God has done for you because you know that. You know what God has done for you. You don't have to have like this teaching in your mind that you can give to people as you pass. You know what God has done for you. And maybe all you know is that, you know, God loves me and I'm sure he loves you too. You'd be surprised how many people have no concept that God would love them. As a matter of fact, they think just the opposite. And then if you're pastoring people, invite them to come and learn more. Invite them to come and learn more. That's how simple it is. But it starts with love that I genuinely value people. And then when God brings somebody across my path, I pray for them. I pray for those people. I include them in my life in whatever ways are possible. I share with them what God has done, and I invite them into a closer fellowship. Let's do this as a church. And to do it as a church means we do it as individuals. Our vision and my prayer is that we would be a church of pastors caring for one another. See, it's those one another's that I read you earlier that give us traction to what it means to pastor. And you may already know, as you're sitting here right now, people that God wants you to pastor, or you, nobody might come to mind. And if nobody comes to mind, then ask God for a divine appointment and allow him to give you someone to care for. I'd like to close in prayer. Father God, thank you that you've loved us, and we love you, and we love your son, and we want to care for your sheep, God. We want to care and shepherd, pastor and love those that you've called. And I pray, God, that each of us can be blessed with the opportunity to care for another person, to show them your love and your goodness, and to lead them to their new destiny. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.